Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware that during this story, the names and images of people who are deceased will be used in both the podcast and on the website. Why do we feel the need to remember the past? Not only as individuals, but as a collective. What is it that compels us to paint a picture of where we've come from? Through the stories we tell and the songs we sing. Through the memorials and monuments that we put up, statues and plaques, and then the books and the testimonies that we produce. We do this because what makes us comfortable is an identity, a sense of belonging. And history gives us that. As individuals, we strive through life to know who we are. What do we stand for? What do we stand against? When somebody asks you, who are you? What other things are going to making up your answer? There are, of course, the physical traits, like how you look, how you walk, you talk, the practical things, like what work you do, your hobbies. Plus, there are those more intangible mental aspects, like what values and principles do you carry through your life, if any, that determine how you behave in different situations. Much of what makes up you is drawn from where you grow up, the people around you, and of course, the history of everything that you've been through in your life. That history includes all the things you've done, seen, said, heard, made, felt, etc. It's the same for groups and for communities and societies. Who are we collectively? What do we represent or what represents us? What have we been through that has defined our identity as this group? We support this football team. These are the qualities of what make us this particular group of supporters. And we share the experience of not having won the championship in so long. Or we are of this religion. This is what we believe in. And these are the rituals that we undertake and they help identify us as being us. Here is our past, and what happened that led to us doing this. And here's a common one. We are of this nation, or this race, or this region. This is our history. This is where our people have come from, and the events that we have been through. And this is what those events mean to us today, in how we view our place in the world as these people. Because History is not just an inquiry into the past. It is a way of establishing our identities. The same events happening and being told to two different people will carry different meaning and weight according to how the stories are being told and 
how they are being heard. Events will often be recounted or interpreted in a way that gives further foundation to the established narrative, and also in a way that helps us understand why things are the way they are today. In fact, in many ways, the actual events of history matter far less than what people tell themselves about those events long after they have occurred. History is very much about the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And this is where history can become a battlefield. Because how we view our history determines how we view the world around us. How we tell stories and the ways in which we remember things through plaques or statues or celebrations of certain historical events like national holidays, even the different ways in which we celebrate those things, they all represent history. And so, just like the events themselves, they have different meanings to different people and how they identify themselves. The first episode of this two-part podcast series set the context for the history of relations between European settlers and their descendants, and the first Australians. It told a story of the Gurindji strike of 1966, when hundreds of exploited native workers went on strike for eight years. If you haven't listened to it, feel free to do so before continuing with this second part. When the Gurindji and other indigenous workers walked off the Wave Hill cattle station, they would help push Australia down a path where it would have to begin confronting its established historical narrative. This process, indeed, would be confrontational. The history wars would be nasty in tone, and they continue to be so to this day. Just as an individual might look into the depths of his or her character or past and not like what they see, so too can a people take a revised look at their collective history at new interpretations of events in the past and not like what they see. Now there existed views on the nation's history that did not reflect what were considered to be the nation's values of mateship and a fair go. If non-Indigenous Australians, who had been raised on an idea of the greatness and the opportunity of Australia, must recognise the suffering endured by their Indigenous people from the First Fleet up until today... They would also have to recognise the continual sense of loss and non-belonging felt by the first Australians. In the 60s, this did not conform with Australia's mainstream and established idea of itself. It was said that non-Indigenous kids would feel guilt or shame if a revised history of Aboriginal maltreatment was taught in schools. Not being able to reconcile your past with how you feel about it, is often called dissonant heritage, and it is at the core of Australia's history wars. Non-Indigenous Australians cannot comprehend the sense of invasion and discrimination that the first Australians have had to and continue to endure across Australia, no matter how much they may empathise with or try to understand their struggle. But the emotions can be recognised, and they can be accepted and incorporated into a more broadly defined sense of national identity without guilt or shame, but a maturity that says, despite its horror, this is a part of who we are, and we have learned from it. Unfortunately, this hasn't happened yet. 
Because the fact is that as Australians fought and continue to fight over how they view their history, the real life and torrid consequences of that history continue to be felt by people from countless Indigenous nations all over the country. Wanky academic terms like dissonant heritage and debates over details do nothing to change the massive disparity in living standards that exists between the Indigenous and the non-Indigenous people of Australia. That disparity, despite the details, and whether Australians like it or not, is a consequence of history. But this episode is not purely about Australian history, even though it provides a focus. Because the topic of dissonant heritage and how people deal with different aspects of their past continues to demand answers from societies all around the world today. What is your history? What does it mean and how should it be told or not told? Does the narrative of your history conform to how you identify yourself as a person and as a group? There's some massive insinuation going on here, and perhaps it's a little bit vague. So how about, what does this particular statue of this person who fought for this side in this conflict, which has different and contradictory meanings to different people, what does that statue really represent? Should it be allowed to stand there in public, both a thing of celebration and contempt? So yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about statues. Although hopefully, they'll be statues that you've never heard of before. Finally, we will be looking at some examples of these questions being asked around the world and how different societies have dealt with matters of their past, trying to solve dissonant heritage, with the fact that the same history, the same stories, can be both told and heard in many different ways. History is in the eye of the beholder, and once beheld, it can be a belligerent bastard of a thing. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This is the second and final episode of our series, Gather Round, People. So, you know, gather round. This episode is brought to you by two white Australian dudes. Best keep that in mind. When Bill Stannis spoke of the Great Australian Silence in regard to the neglect of Aboriginal involvement in the telling of Australian history, he spoke of the, quote, several hundred thousand Aborigines who lived and died between 1788 and 1938 being negative facts of history, end quote. And so, in his implications, he was saying that in the communication of Australian history, Australia's native people had been made, quote, in no way consequential for the modern period, end quote. His main argument was that Australian history to that point had been told in an unduly positive light, in a way that was utterly neglectful of the experiences 
of its first inhabitants within that history. It told that the British had arrived with a bunch of battling convicts in an uninhabited land and against all odds, including violent attacks from Aborigines, forged what would become a great and modern nation. Australia's historians answered Stanner on all sides of the divide. Researchers around the country began to scour government offices, newspaper records, and also oral accounts in order to start reshaping that understanding. One academic, Henry Reynolds, said of the time, quote, The field became one of the busiest and most creative areas of a rapidly maturing Australian historiography. Scholars moved in many directions, but few called in to question the original perception about the central importance of frontier conflict to an understanding of both the past and the present. There was also broad consensus that it was a major, albeit long-overlooked, theme of the national story. End quote. There were major players who got involved. People like Manning Clark, who was the most publicly renowned of Australia's historians. Towards the end of his life, he became a champion of amending the great Australian silence. Noel Butlin was another, an economic historian whose work ranged across an incredibly diverse spectrum of topics. In the 80s, he turned his attention to the economics of colonisation. He made a suggestion that the smallpox epidemics that had wrought such havoc through Aboriginal populations had likely been deliberately introduced by the settler colonies. With very little evidence to support this suggestion, the claim would itself wreak a bit of its own havoc on the battlefield of history. Geoffrey Blaney is another who entered the fray fairly early on, but not particularly on any one side. Over the years, he has quite reasonably argued that where before there had been an overtly positive spin put on Australian history, now historians were amending too far to the other side and putting an unduly negative spin on it. It was Blaney who coined the term black armband history, which would be used in the 90s to describe a teaching of history that some said unfairly burdened the non-Indigenous youth in Australia with an undue sense of shame and guilt. Blaney remains fairly measured, as he continues to produce work on the history of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australia. It was he who first put forth solid arguments for Aboriginal farming, especially using fire and seeds, as indicators of advanced civilization and who lords the feet of indigenous arrivals some 60,000 years ago as probably the greatest nautical achievement made by humans up until that point. At the same time, he gets criticised a lot for having what has been called a fixation on the pre-invasion brutality of Aboriginal society. If you've listened to one of our previous episodes on William Buckley, you'll remember that he documented his 32 years living amongst the local Kulin peoples as having been marked by near-constant violence. Buckley is one of Blaney's main sources for this perception of the violence within native society, and of course, it can be well disputed. It is impossible to know exactly what pre-colonisation Aboriginal societies were like. Indeed, they were incredibly diverse across the whole country, and Buckley's insights only came from one small area. Throughout the colonisation process, so much of Aboriginal culture and heritage was lost, or indeed taken away from them, not only through the violence of the frontier and through disease, but also through the stolen generation, where thousands of children were forcibly removed from their homes 
during the 20th century. Although there may have been as much violence as Blaney suggests, without a greater understanding of Aboriginal history, how can we know where violence really fits into the entire framework of Aboriginal Australian identity? We can't. But it is this kind of thing that became present in the forum of national discussion about Australia's history. Of all the historians, though, Henry Reynolds became arguably the most active, vocal, and determined to break the great Australian silence. Through what are generally thought to be meticulous research methods by many, and over the course of numerous books and essays, he presented the case that Australia's frontier had been one of warfare, in which around 3,000 Europeans and at least 20,000 Aborigines had been killed as a direct result of violence. Of course, this was made worse by the even greater casualties that resulted from diseases, such as smallpox. Academics have battled over the matter of smallpox and how it historically happened for decades. While this debate is fair enough, it is important to realise that when the history wars gained heat, the public focus would linger on things like this, rather than on the real-life consequences of the occurrence itself and of the Indigenous health crisis that continues to this day. Nobody knows how smallpox arrived in Australia. The first recorded outbreak amongst Aborigines occurred around the First Fleet's colony, some 16 months after European arrival. Variolus matter, basically smallpox scabs kept in glass bottles that were used for inoculation, had been brought over by the surgeons of the early settlement, as noted by a captain of the Marines, Watkin Tench. But this does not equate to the outbreak having originated from that source. Tench returned to England four years after the First Fleet's arrival, and a year later published the first of two accounts of his time in Australia. He wrote of the likelihood that the surgeon's samples had been the origin of the disaster, that, quote, to infer that it was produced from this cause were a supposition so wild as to be unworthy of consideration, end quote. The thing is that not a single passenger of the fleet could have carried smallpox, simply because too much time had passed. Smallpox has an average incubation time of 12 to 14 days. 16 months was too long for a settler or a convict to have had the disease and the symptoms not to have become obvious. Tench speculated that the disease may have been indigenous to the country, or that perhaps the French had brought it when Jean-Francois de Gallup, the Comte de La Perouse, had arrived in Australia on his scientific expedition around the world. If you have a problem with my French pronunciation there, you need to tell us about it. In one of those dinky coincidences of history, the French arrived in Botany Bay about a week after the First Fleet, during the time when Philip was planning the settlement's move to Port Jackson. The French spent six weeks camped just by the new British colony, and there were 11 recorded visits between them and the British. But Laperouse and his crew, after they left Botany Bay for New Caledonia and to voyage further around the south of Australia, would never be seen again. We don't have their documentation or any suggestion that there was smallpox amongst their crew, so that source is possible, but also unlikely for the same reason that the voyage was so long that symptoms would most likely have been obvious before disembarkation in Australia. But then, we'll simply never know. 
The other argument that was first recorded in the early 20th century, but restated in the 1980s and 90s, was that smallpox had been brought here from Southeast Asia and spread by contact between Aborigines in the north and Macassan fishermen from Indonesia, who from the 18th century had been visiting that part of Australia to collect sea cucumbers, which were all the rage in China. This argument has prominently been put forward in recent times by Judy Campbell, who as a historian has spent over 20 years studying smallpox and other diseases amongst Aboriginal populations. There is both great strength and great weakness within Australian historiography. People work tirelessly putting in the time and effort to research and form varied opinions about certain things. And we don't want to take away from that work that historians and other academics do in this regard. But the historical and continued impact of what various plagues meant for Aboriginal society and their role in creating some of the health and living conditions of Indigenous Australians today should not come second to arguments about who caused it. Obviously, that is not the job of historians, but what they say has such an impact on how the wider society thinks, for how we form our narratives and our identities, and on how and why people either do or do not act. The history of how Aboriginal societies dealt with smallpox and the impact of the disease and others on those societies should be as important and arguably more important than how smallpox occurred in the first place. Health issues remain dire for Indigenous Australians. STDs and diseases like tuberculosis remain way more prevalent than in mainstream society. In 2013, within the non-Indigenous Australian-born population, there were 0.8 reported cases of tuberculosis for every 100,000 people. For Indigenous Australians, there were 4.6 reported cases for every 100,000. Whilst both those statistics are way lower than for reported cases amongst non-Australian-born people, which was 18.4 per 100,000, it's still a pretty big disparity and it is by no means the only or the greatest one. When Henry Reynolds, having gone through historical records, documents, and newspapers, made a calculation in 1981 about the number of people killed on both sides during the frontier conflict, he lit a fuse of contention that would amplify this debate. European deaths were far better documented than Aboriginal deaths, and his educated guess was based on a suggested ratio between casualties on both sides. This differed from colony to colony. For instance, in Tasmania, he suggested four Aboriginal deaths for every one European. In Queensland, it was 10 to 1. Therefore, he arrived at that number of around 20,000 Aboriginal deaths resulting from frontier violence. It wasn't based on much, but in trying to fill the great Australian silence, At least it was something, something that people could look at as a possibility for what may have happened. His greatest sparring partner would become Keith Windshuttle, who had previously admired Reynolds' consistent and rigorous methodologies, but who became entirely irked at the calculation of 20,000 Aboriginal deaths based upon what he said was a guess with no evidence. Windshuttle is all about objective history, having, so he said, gone through the records and applied his own high standards of research to the matter, 
He proclaimed that left-wing historians like Reynolds were fabricating Australian history, misrepresenting evidence, and creating a past of European violence towards Aborigines that didn't exist. Bringing objectivity or strict empiricism into a discussion on Indigenous history can cause some pretty harsh insensitivity, as from that standpoint, oral history does not count as reliable historical evidence. Windshuttle said, quote, Aboriginal oral history, when uncorroborated by original documents, is completely unreliable, just like the oral history of white people, end quote. This is fair enough, I suppose, if you were trying to be as objective as possible. But can history and how we view it be truly objective when the consequences of how it is told and what has resulted from it are usually so subjectively felt? Must it be solely objective? Would not the most objective thing be to understand how subjective the study and communication of history is and what impact that has on the people whose history it is? Late Japanese historian Minoru Hokari went and lived with the Gurindji people for a year in 1999, over 30 years after they and their kind had walked away from the Vestis. He attempted to gain an understanding of their methods of oral history and came from a background of archival and academic training. He wrote about Gurindji methodology and in the following Gumpen, which I'm definitely mispronouncing, means Gurindji and Katia, which I'm also definitely mispronouncing, means non-Gurindji. Quote, Gurindji historical practice describes their colonial history as the interaction of historical actors which include not only Gumpen and Katia, but also dreaming. It is obvious and rational in the Gurindji country that dreaming beings have been as active as humans throughout the colonial history. End quote. Already, he shows that the Gringy way of doing history differs so significantly from Western established methods. Objective archival history like wind shuttles cannot take into account, analyze, or record the significance of native spirituality and of dreamtime characters in how the Gringy or indeed other Aborigines view their history. Specifically regarding how the Gringy years later still saw the nature of the authority against which their people had rebelled in the Gurindji strike of 1966, Hokari goes on, quote, From an academic historical perspective, it was not the Vestis, but Nathaniel Buchanan and his family who had established the first Wave Hill Station in the early 1880s. Vestis took over the property in the 1910s. However, According to the Gurindji historians, the Vesti mob established cattle stations all over the place by following Captain Cook's journey. It seemed that Vesti time started from the very beginning of the colonization of their country. End quote. The point he's making here is that from the most objective academic standpoint, the way the Gurindji view this history is wrong. Captain Cook never set foot anywhere near Wave Hill, although they tell themselves of Captain Cook's journey. The British explorer carries iconic or totemic weight by being symbolic of the advent of European colonization and the loss of their land. Nathaniel Buchanan, 
the original leaseholder of Wave Hill Station, is significant in the chronological and objective documentation of events. But he had no role or significance in how the Gurindji built up a history or a story that they could use and carry with them through and beyond their eight-year rebellion. Those meatpackers, the Vesties, however, they symbolized the direct and sole authority responsible for oppressing their people and destroying their land. And so the entire period of that oppression and destruction was known historically as Vesti time. The Gurindji strike inspired future acts of defiance and rebellion in the cause of indigenous rights and recognition. The strike itself was fueled by a story that the Gurindji told themselves, fortified by a history that academics everywhere would have said was pointedly and objectively incorrect. But what mattered more than the objective detail was the emotion and meaning that the Gurindji's history gave them in maintaining their strike and demanding their land back. So who is anybody to say that there's no value or meaning in that way of viewing history? Would any of that rebellion have occurred if the Gurindji saw their past the same way that Keith Windshuttle did? History is seen in different ways, by different peoples, and it means different things. And all of those differences go towards giving us a richer understanding of history. Differing methodologies remain a common problem in the recounting of colonial history around the world. As Victoria Haskins put it in her book, Sources and Methods in Histories of Colonialism. Quote, The problems and issues for researchers of settler colonial indigenous histories are manifold. The alien nature of the traditional text-based archive of the historian has been a starting point for discussion, with indigenous research methodologies and ways of doing history often positioned and defined in direct opposition to archival techniques. End quote. So as you can see, the history wars were and remain extensive and complex. In 2001, a debate between Henry Reynolds and Keith Winshuttle was held on national television. In the first part, the two spent minutes arguing over a specific case of conflict between a group of European settlers and a group of natives in Western Australia in 1834. The incident, depending on your personal choice of history, is called either the Pinjara Massacre or the Battle of Pinjara, where a group of about 25 settlers, police, and the governor of WA himself, James Sterling, confronted a large group of Noongar natives with the objective of capturing Aboriginal men they thought were responsible for previous attacks on settlers. The debate between the two historians was over whether it was a legitimate, if violent, police enforcement action against people who had broken the law, or whether it was an unjust and violent police action in which multiple innocent people were killed. Have a listen for a moment. And this is Windshuttle at the start, with Reynolds responding. The police and the troops involved had to do their duty. They had to arrest this particular person. I mean, you can't allow um, somebody to go around killing your own men and then say, oh, well, um, they're Aborigines, we won't do anything about it. If he says that it was a legitimate action to arrest a known offender, that's a reasonable thing to say, but the known offender was shot. Why then were 20 or 30 or 40 other people shot? because all his comrades threw spears as well at the same time. And, and it wasn't 20 or 30 other Aborigines who were shot at all. The only people who were shot 
were those who were who were resisting and attempting to kill the the, the, the officers. And, and the guy didn't die from a concussion. He bled to death from a spear in the head. He did not. He died of concussion, <laughs> having fallen from the horse. Well, yeah, your yeah, source yeah. is a guy who wasn't even there at the time. No, well, you, know, little, you, 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 no. you don't even know what went on, no, on no. the day. So it did come to this. Two white academics arguing over the specifics of how somebody died, rather than discussing the ramifications of both of their fairly valid, if opposing, points of view. They went on further in discussing the sources and methodologies of their history and that of their contemporaries, and about the conflict and frontier violence across Australia in general. Reynolds is very deliberate, and at times comes across as somewhat patronising in how he speaks, but simply holds firm on his position, sources, and his methodologies, those that led to him surmising that Australia's colonial history was one that included grave violence and much killing. Windshuttle makes some fairly valid arguments about people in the 19th century having a vested interest in misrepresenting the amount of frontier violence. He suggested that church groups and agencies looking for government funding to give aid in the conflict would exaggerate the violence, so as to exaggerate the need for funding. Another of his suggestions was that people who were mistreated by the governors or other officials or who felt enmity towards the colonial state would write back to London, saying how violent the government was towards the natives. Finally, Windshuttle says that European pastoralists writing memoirs for their children and grandchildren wanted to portray how great a struggle they had overcome in establishing themselves and their own on this land. They would talk of the drought, the storms, the fires, the harshness and difficulty of opening up the country and the struggle and violence against the blacks. Windshuttle does recognize some massacres, he just insists that there was way, way less violence and killings than what Reynolds and others had suggested. To him, they were inflating and fabricating data to create a negative history of Australia that wasn't the case. What the historians have done is taken everything they, they, they say at face value and have reproduced it. If somebody says, oh, there are eight Aborigines killed here, they just say, the historians say, okay, we'll add eight more to the toll. To which Reynolds responded, The trouble is with Keith that anyone, anyone at all, who suggests that there was killing on the frontier, he finds some reason, he dredges up something to try and discredit them. Uh, he is uh, acting as a defence counsel uh, for the settlers and the government. Now, that's all right, I don't mind him doing that. But it is a very selective way that anyone who stands up and says, look, they're killing blacks out there, he finds some reason, whatever it is, to say, oh no, they, they can't be believed. Well, again, Whereas, no, let me finish. Whereas those who say there weren't any massacres, he says, ah, these are the people we should believe. Okay, well that's completely false because there are some massacres which I've acknowledged, I've written about... Pew, 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 pew. History Wars. Stan Grant, a journalist and TV show host with over three decades of experience has become one of Australia's most renowned and respected national figures, regardless of being a Wiradjuri man. His book, Talking to My Country, is a compelling and passionate insight into the plight of being a first Australian in modern Australia, 
from the first-hand account of his own life and his experiences, he tells us of being a boy whose family lived in transient poverty. He writes of all the social stigma to do with being called an Aboriginal, of growing up in Australia without the rights of being an Australian. Stan Grant will accompany us through this podcast, as his unique role in the upper media echelons of society places him at some of the most iconic moments of rebellion and resistance within the Indigenous struggle for recognition. Of the history of the frontier, Grant says, quote, I learned this story from my father, and now I tell my boy. It is a story about how the ancient traditions and the deep connection of the land, all of it formed over thousands of generations, was smashed by the coming of people we call the Wandang, the ghosts. We are connected to this time and place, and we are yet to emerge from its shadow. End quote. Bring what objectivity you may. You simply cannot deny the validity of that story, what the history means to Grant and his sense of identity, as it did to his fathers and as it will do to his sons. So you should be getting an idea of the history wars and what kind of tone they took on. In this whole conflict, which had kicked off with those first acts of violence between early European settlers and the natives in whose world the settlers were settling, historians were now playing a massive role. Because the real-life consequences and conditions of the conflict, and the conflict itself, still continue to exist. And the way the history of the conflict was being told would come to affect those real-life conditions. Historians are people with their own feelings and senses of identity that are attached to the history of the place they come from, the history that they were now trying to discern and communicate. Similarly, the historical narrative that they debate and decide upon, as well as communicate to the wider public, has a massive impact on the sense of identity for every person in the country. We see the display of the division This is wrought in how Australians choose to behave and think on days like the 26th of January. Do we celebrate or do we mourn? By answering Stanner's call to fill the historiographical void that was the Great Australian Silence, historians were bound to take different approaches and come to different conclusions, simply because they are different people with different attachments between their history and their sense of who they are as people. This is unavoidable in the study of history, but it can be useful because neither history nor people are invulnerable to change and opinion. This gives us a broader scope from which we can decide about everything for ourselves. Furthermore, it is those like Windshuttle and Reynolds who kick-started what has continued and grown to be a major department of Australian historical study. Whilst there has been both support and refutation on both sides in this conflict, thanks largely to their pioneering steps in filling the silence, a lot of further research has been done in the previous 15 years by people like Tony Roberts, Jonathan Richards, and Robert Orsted Jensen. Much of this tends to support Reynolds' argument that there was severe and genocidal practice by settlers and the native police force, a department of the police specifically operating on the frontier in Aboriginal relations and issues, often in very remote regions and so fairly autonomously. These historians and academics 
have actually revised Reynolds' 20,000 fatality estimate from 1981 and put it more upwards of 30,000. It is important to have fierce objectivists, like Windshuttle, and for everybody who studies history to continue to question and remain skeptical on statements and historical claims that may well emanate too much from personal feeling, like empathy or remorse, than from empirical evidence. However, it is also important to have those such as Henry Reynolds, who are willing to view the sources in a way that rebels against his own established historical narrative, which is what he did in 1981, following the lead of Bill Stanner. It is up to us as individuals, of course, to gather from amongst the whole gamut of information and come to our own conclusions. We should also always consider that all the information we can gather will still never make up the full puzzle. And we can be as objective as we feel possible and still not really be sure of exactly what went on. And anyway, all the objectivity in the world cannot deny the very real and emotionally impactful conditions that, in whatever way, our history has created. Because at the time when those two historians debated the validity of their sources and the objective precision of exactly what occurred, Aboriginal Australians all across the country continue to live in third world conditions, endure systemic and social racism and discrimination, and have their historical narrative, as well as governmental and social policy, being determined and decided upon by people who mostly weren't them. Every official document in Australia, in the part where you fill out your name and address and etc., also always has a question on whether you are of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander origin. To non-Aborigines, this often presents as an indication that the country, in its bureaucracy and administration, takes particular care that its Indigenous people are included. Stan Grant sees it differently. Quote, Whenever we enrol in school, apply for a job, or join a sports team, there is a box to tick that asks if we are Aboriginal or Islander. No one else is asked this. If we tick yes, we have to prove it. My children have to ask their grandfather, a member of the Wiradjuri Council of Elders, to verify the identity of his own flesh and blood. End quote. The determination of Aboriginal affairs has always been supervised or directed by non-Aborigines. Even in attempts at inclusiveness, Australia officially reminds its first Australians every day that at best, they are included separately from everyone else. Quote, When I was young, it used to make me feel sick, physically ill in the pit of my stomach. It was a fear of what could touch us, the sense of powerlessness, of being at the mercy of the intrusion of the police or welfare officers who enforced laws that enshrined our exclusion and condemned us to poverty. End quote. That was Stan Grant again. To this day, the living conditions for First Australians in parts of Australia are so far below the standard of mainstream society that the differences in life expectancy between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people sits at around 10 years. You would think that that would be too great to ignore. And yet, still, it somehow remains ignored. To deal with it, the whole society would need to deal with the history of how those conditions came about. And there we are. A million academics all around the world could point out 
the path that led us to this appalling state and what that state is. Unless, however, the mainstream narrative begins to see and talk about and demand change against this disparity in consultation with the people who suffer from it, it will continue to exist. The life expectancy difference is atrociously stark. The 2009 UN report on the state of the world's indigenous people says about Australian Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders, quote, a native Aboriginal child born in Australia today can expect to die up to 20 years earlier than his non-Indigenous compatriot. Obesity, type 2 diabetes, and tuberculosis are now major health concerns amongst Indigenous peoples in developed countries. Smoking and substance abuse are more common amongst Indigenous peoples, while suicide rates and incarceration rates are significantly higher. These problems are more pronounced in urban areas where Indigenous peoples are detached from their communities and cultures, yet never fully embraced as equal members of the dominant society. Indigenous peoples are also more likely to suffer from violent crime. End quote. So a lot of that information, by the way, in this age of fake news, needs to be sourced. Well, the UN is one source, and the statistics of a 10-year life expectancy gap is supported by the Australian government website. So, yeah, it must be fake. Oh, but they can be backed up by organisations such as Oxfam Australia's Close the Gap, which for 11 years has been working to achieve aims in solving this awful state of condition. They put the life expectancy difference at between 10 and 17 years. But, you know, they are probably just some socialist agenda-bent organisation putting out more fake news. Fake, fake, fake. Sad. Whether we like it or not, history is tied to the conditions that make up how people live today and to their sense of identity. It provides something to cling onto. Particular opinions sometimes don't matter as much as the fact that there are different opinions and that people act or behave differently based on those differences. People can be wrong, very wrong about history, of course. But there is merit in understanding how, and more importantly, why they hold what you see as a wrong opinion and what it means to them and how they use it to identify with themselves and their role in the world today. History helps make our identity, our sense of belonging. It is our story, told and heard from multiple perspectives. How you tell a story and how you hear a story and what the story means to you, that is as important as the plotline of this story itself, if not more. But also, since the beginning of the history wars, the social narrative around Aboriginal relations has begun to change. It has taken many and various acts of rebellion and resistance on the parts of individuals and groups fighting for the rights of their people. During the 90s, a more modern and diverse Australia with self-identifiably liberal and socially conscious portions of society began to talk about and seek a change in the establishment's narrative on the issue demanding things like an apology from the government for the maltreatment of Aborigines, and specifically for committing what some saw as the genocidal practice of removing children from their homes. It's when society and people demand change that politicians must act, and established narratives are forced into change. The Gurindji strike had been a massive step, and Gough Whitlam, 
The Prime Minister who had transferred ownership to Vincent Lingari and his people on behalf of the entire public, well, remember what he had said back in episode one? Quote, I want to acknowledge that we Australians still have much to do to redress the injustice and oppression that have for so long been the loss of black Australians. End quote. Well, Australia still had much to do. The Gurindji strike had indeed opened the door for native title, land rights claims from indigenous people around the country. Others had followed the strike, and by the late 1970s, some had seen failures in native title and some had seen success, depending on how you look at it. In 1971, the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory upheld the doctrine of terra nullius over any native title claim. The federal government then began to look at ways to come to a compromise that they could live with. And in 1976, they passed the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, Australia's first, which transferred around 50% of the Northern Territory to communal Aboriginal ownership. In 1981, there was a similar achievement in South Australia. Paul Coe, a Wiradjuri man who was one of the driving forces behind the Aboriginal tent embassy, in 1979 unsuccessfully attempted a class action for native title to all of Australia on behalf of all Australian Aborigines. In 1974, a gardener for James Cook University in Townsville, Queensland, met Henry Reynolds, who studied and worked there for over 30 years. The gardener's name was Eddie Koiki Mabo. A colleague of Reynolds, Noel Luce, recounted a conversation the three were involved in. Quote, Koki was just speaking about his land back on Murr or Murray Island. Henry and I realized that in his mind, he thought he owned that land. So we sort of glanced at each other and then had the difficult responsibility of telling him that he didn't own that land and that it was crown land. Koki was surprised, shocked. And I remember him saying, no way, it's not theirs, it's ours. End quote. Eddie Mabo, as he would be most widely remembered, became much more than just a gardener at James Cook University. He became vocal and active in discussing and debating Indigenous land rights, and also a researcher on projects largely to do with his native Torres Strait Islands, which are islands off the northeasternmost tip of Australia, Cape York Peninsula, south of New Guinea. If you don't know where that is... You can find it on a map. Whilst working on a research project, he was travelling up to the islands, and along the way he was refused permission to land on some islands further north than a certain point. Can you imagine this? Being forbidden by the law of your country to go to the islands that are your birthplace and native inheritance? Henry Reynolds said that, quote, For Eddie, the rejection was devastating. He could not go home. He was not only landless in the eyes of white man's law, he was an exile as well. End quote. In 1981, Eddie gave a speech at a land rights conference held at the university, in which he called upon the islands to be made a semi-autonomous region under the rule of the Commonwealth of Australia and not the state of Queensland. It was here that he outlined that Torres Strait Islanders had their own particular customs, behaviours, and idea of how they see themselves. On the islands, unlike the mainland where European contact had first been made, 
the idea of land ownership and land inheritance did exist. Quote, In the Torres Strait, land ownership is the same throughout. It is different from Aboriginal land ownership on the mainland. Although we have tribal regions, we go much further into the clan area and then to individual or family holdings. This system existed as long as we could remember. When the first white men arrived in our islands, they found people as village dwellers who lived in permanent houses and in well-kept villages. They also discovered that we were expert gardeners and hunters. End quote. At this stage, all indigenous people had been forced to operate under Australian law for well over a century. When Mabo had spoken at the conference, there were lawyers there who conferred and realized that the islander land inheritance system that Eddie had described would have huge significance for Australian common law. A year later, Eddie Marbo, with the support of the young lawyers and academics who saw him speak, and alongside David Passy and James Rice, two of his fellow Merriam people, would pursue legal action in redefining Indigenous land rights. They would pursue native title. Over the course of another 10 years, they took their case all the way to the High Court of Australia. There, they laid their claim that the Torres Strait Islands belonged to them and their people. Effectively, they challenged Terra Nullius. It took until 1992, but in the end, they won the case. You little ripper! Thanks, lads. This had huge consequences for the vibe of everything. Now Aborigines around Australia could look at the courts as a way of regaining what had been taken from them. Furthermore, the decision also affected the permissibility of land for future development and mining prospects. Aboriginal ownership rights over places that had been granted native title now had to be taken into consideration. Tragically, Eddie Marbo died of cancer in 1992, five months before the ruling was handed out. He was buried in Townsville, but his gravesite was vandalised, with swastikas and racial slurs sprayed on it. His family finally had him reinterred on the island of his birth. What he had achieved, it seemed, would leave a legacy and path for others to follow. It had now been officially recognised that Terra Nullius was false and did not apply. Australia had been inhabited by civilised people when the British arrived, and what followed could now rightfully be looked at as an invasion, as much as it had previously always been looked at as a beneficial colonial settlement. In the 80s, as Mabo and his compatriots were waging legal battle, the Labor government had abandoned a national land rights policy and disbanded a nationally elected Aboriginal conference in 1985. But after the Mabo decision, the tide began to turn, Soon, governmental policy would also quite radically head down the path of truly confronting what had become dark, bitter and disputed aspects of Australian history and the ramifications of that history that still existed. In 1991, Paul Keating took over the leadership of the governing Labour Party. On the 10th of December 1992, he made a speech at Redfern Park in Sydney, the centre of the native Koori culture of Sydney. It marked the coming year for the world's Indigenous people. The speech was in front of many Indigenous activists and community members, including a young Stan Grant, 
who introduced the Prime Minister. The moment allowed Keating to position the Australian government as far as the establishment had ever gone towards actual recognition of and amendment to misdeeds and atrocities of the past and to reconciling modern Australian identity with this past. Here he is. Because in truth, we cannot confidently say that we've succeeded if we've not managed to expect to extend opportunity and care, dignity and hope to the Indigenous people of Australia, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This is a fundamental test of our social goals and our national will. Our ability to say to ourselves and to the rest of the world that Australia is a first-rate social democracy, that we are what we should be, truly the land of a fair go and the better chance. There is no more basic test, I think, of how seriously we mean these things. It's in test of our self-knowledge, of how well we know the land we live in, how well we know our history. Senior arts lecturer at Victoria University and author Tom Clark, in his analysis of Keating's speech, points out the grammatical construction of how Keating uses the pronoun we, arguing that the us and them distinction had been well entrenched in how European Australians had viewed Aboriginal relations for so long. Keating was flipping it around and pointing a mirror back at those who would make that distinction and so perpetuate the conflict. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance ignorance, and our prejudice and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. With some noble exceptions, we fail to make the most basic human response and enter into their hearts and minds. We fail to ask, how would I feel if this was done to me? As a consequence, we failed to see that what we were doing degraded us all. Clark and his colleagues, Melissa Walsh and Ravi DaCosta, in researching Keating's use of we, concluded that, quote, For all the usual apprehensions about us and them scenarios, it is a model that assumes we have something to work out with them. There is, in other words, business to conduct between the parties. To bridge such a divide requires acknowledging it in the first place. Keating's frame bridges all such distinctions, except, of course, the primary distinction between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. End quote. This speech was absolutely massive. The Australian establishment, the government and representative of the people was burdening itself with responsibility for the consequences of the conflict, as well as recognising a separation between Australians that must be resolved. In a way, 
its hand had been forced. And of course, Gough Whitlam had come symbolically close nearly 20 years before, but it took a Prime Minister willing to do the recognising for it to all become official. Amazingly, Clark and his colleagues have even suggested that Keating's speech was itself an act of rebellion against his speechwriters and advisers and conventional political wisdom. They say that Don Watson, his chief speechwriter, quote, described the procedure for developing this manuscript as unusual in that it missed out on the regular level of office scrutiny, the final draft being read only by Keating himself before his delivery. Watson contends that this almost certainly headed off the temptation for Keating's advisers to hedge the speech's most memorable lines, end quote. So perhaps Keating himself had gone renegade in an attempt to start refashioning the social and political narratives. For what it's worth, we here think that the most important line is the very last one that we heard. Quote, What we were doing degraded all of us. End quote. All of us, indigenous and non-indigenous. That's the end goal. Suddenly, regarding those who had taken action, Vincent Lingari and his people and Eddie Marbo and the historians who had been seeking to provide evidence to support a change of narrative and all the others who had worked so hard for this kind of step, now it seemed like the government was going to follow their lead. Policy initiatives would reflect a new understanding of Australian history and self-perspective. In 1995, the Australian Human Rights Commission began a report on the nature and extent of the removal of Aboriginal children by state, church, and other authorities during the 20th century. The end product of this national inquiry, called Bringing Them Home, would be finished in 1997. Society is a broad spectrum, and overall change does not occur overnight. Demand for change requires frequent and demanding acts. The battle needed to be fought not only in politics, history and law, but also in culture. Sport is a platform where racial ideas of superiority and inferiority have forever been unable to withstand the heat, athletic competition being contended on the basis of the actual abilities of each individual or team, regardless of their race. Australia has a native and unique sport, largely unknown to the rest of the world, called Australian Rules Football. From early on, many Aboriginal athletes displayed great ability on the football field, despite the social segregation and maltreatment across the country and the general racism within the narrative of the society. Australian football is the most popular sport in the country, where games can attract up to 90,000 people watching live. By the 90s, there were still regular and blatant displays of racial abuse directed at Indigenous players from the crowd, as well as likely from other players. And this is just in the professional league, not to mention what would likely have been occurring in the countless amateur and country leagues. In 1993, champion Indigenous footballer Nicky Winmar stood up against what was the latest in a torrent of abuse that he and other Aboriginal players would have endured over the years. Supporters from the opposing team yelled at him to go and sniff some petrol, 
referring to the derogatory assumption that Aboriginal communities across the country had denigrated into drug-addled communities. They also told him to go walk about back where he'd come from, which is an interestingly naive approach from white Australians to native Australians. After the final siren, which marks the end of a game of Australian football, Nicky Winmar turned and walked towards the section of the crowd from which the abuse had come. Standing still, with his right hand he pulled up his jumper, showing his bare torso to the stadium. With his left, he lifted his finger and pointed to his black skin, a grim look of defiance on his face. The iconic photo of this moment is up on our website. Check it out. Two years later, in 1995, the league would introduce the first racial vilification rule in Australian sport history. Just as in the wider community, various acts of rebellion would lead to legislation, and over time the social narrative would begin to change and self-regulate against racism. The photo of Nicky Winmar standing defiantly is not only iconic for doing what great photos do, showing the depths of emotions behind the action captured. He was saying, I'm black and I'm proud. It is iconic because it catalyzed the beginning of change of the social narrative in this sport and in sport across Australia. Today, although nowhere near eradicated, racism in crowds is far less and viewed upon negatively amongst the wider population, with perpetrators usually outed immediately by those bearing witness. There is an indigenous round during the season in which Aboriginal heritage of the country and the game are the primary focus and the different teams wear uniforms with Aboriginal art designs. Many programs are set up across the country and all levels of football to help with the eradication of racism within sport and society in general. There is no way that the end goal has been reached. To this day, there are still common reports of racist sledging in Australian sport. Furthermore, and something to consider, is exactly what the burden borne and the strength shown by Indigenous athletes has been. Australians are obsessed with sport, and Native athletes must bear not only the pressures of elite sport and the fishbowl lens through which their lives and their performances are viewed, but they must also carry the conflict and the various histories of them and of all our different peoples. Histories that, as Stan Grant puts it, although, quote, ignored, because the darkness of our past often goes unspoken, does not mean it does not plague us. End quote. Professional Aboriginal athletes must deal with all of the expectations, adulation, and supporter anger from crowds of people, some of whom in their personal and professional lives may also deny them those histories, deny them their and their people's identities. At the 2000 Sydney Olympics, Kathy Freeman became Australia's first individual Aboriginal gold medalist, dominating the 400-metre sprint. It was a beautiful moment, and immediately afterwards, barefoot and draped in both the Australian and Aboriginal flags, she took in that moment before a teary and adoring Australia, united in the love of her and what everybody said she was representing. She said, quote, It was always a dream of mine to not only win an Olympic gold medal, 
but to do the victory lap with both flags. I hold the Aboriginal community in such a high place in my heart, so I'm very proud of my Indigenous roots. End quote. But six years before, Freeman had done the exact same thing after winning gold at the Commonwealth Games. So in the lead-up to the 2000 Olympics, she had been warned that she risked losing all of her Olympic medals if she draped the Aboriginal flag over her, and not just the Australian flag. In Sydney, as she ran her victory lap, she was rebelling against this warning, at risk of losing everything she had worked so hard for. This was an important and iconic statement, and an act of rebellion just as important as all the others on this road. Stan Grant was there to see Freeman cross the finish line. He said, quote, To Australians, victory for this Aboriginal woman on this night would tell the world we had buried the old enmities. The stain of settlement could be wiped clean. We, my people, Kathy's people, saw her as a symbol of survival. She told the world we were still here. End quote. More than a decade after Freeman proudly displayed all of her colours, and 20 years after Nikki Winmar's defiant finger, incidents of racism would still occur on the sports fields. As another Aboriginal footballer, Adam Goods, found out in 2013, when he was called an ape by a 13-year-old girl in the crowd. He pointed out the girl to the security guards in front of the national audience and was then chastised and told from some quarters, including the girl's mother, that he should apologise for hurting her feelings and publicly shaming her. Indicative of how far the social narrative has developed, however, the wider community supported his actions, and indeed, in January 2014, he was named Australian of the Year. Goods rightfully used this new platform to bring wider awareness to what were his passions, to what he cared about. It was at this point, though, that public opinion began to turn on him, and in full display of true Australian-style tall poppy syndrome, people would take any opportunity to cut him down, and he would give them the opportunities. Criticism began immediately after his initial acceptance speech of the award. On Australia Day, giving the speech, he referred to it as Invasion Day. During the Indigenous round of that year, 2014, Goods celebrated kicking a goal with an Indigenous war dance directed towards the members of the opposition supporters, some of whom had been booing him. There was riotous discussion that erupted from the act, with some mainly conservative non-Indigenous Australians saying that Goods was continuing a race war and acting as a symbol of the victimisation of blacks by whites. He himself said it was, quote, a battle cry at you guys saying, this is who I am a warrior and representing my people, end quote. This would be jumped upon. He was perpetuating the divide by saying, you guys, here is a man with fame, success, riches, and he is picking on little girls and antagonizing innocent people. At every game he played, the chorus of boos continued. What perhaps should be considered, as people reacted to Good's obstinacy against the racism he felt, are his exceptional circumstances, just as it does for most, if not every native Australian, the weight of his and all of our histories sit on his shoulders. 
But unlike most Native Australians, he has a platform to speak out and stand up against the continued denial of those histories. Stan Grant also wrote about Goods' defiance. Quote, There was something more sinister here. Adam Goods had moved beyond his station. He was a black fellow with a voice, talking to a country that didn't like what it heard. He was accused of playing the victim, dealing the race card. Adam was told to toughen up, get over it. We hear this a lot. History is in the past. Bad things happen, but it is time to move on. History is not past for us. End quote. So in the course of this struggle for some sort of social justice and inclusion of the Aboriginal people and their history into the mainstream history and identity of Australia, there continues to be a need for various acts, often defiant and often very different. Cultural warriors like Kevin Gilbert, who was also an actual warrior of the Wiradjuri people, in the 1960s and 70s became the first recognised Indigenous poet, playwright and political author focusing, of course, on Aboriginal issues. His first play, Cherry Pickers, was written in prison on toilet paper and smuggled out. It was the first play written by a first Australian in English, and also the first to be performed with an entirely Indigenous cast. Gilbert was an active original member of the group who set up the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in 1972, and who in 1992 was part of establishing it on a permanent basis in front of Old Parliament House in Canberra. Today, the Aboriginal Tent Embassy still stands as a focal point from which to continue demanding Indigenous rights and higher living standards. Music has also been a medium which has led the way from very early on in trying to remould the social narrative of Australian history. Already in 1979, Indigenous reggae band No Fixed Address gave voice to the disparity and oppression, but also pride and sense of self for young Aborigines around the country. Stan Grant, who was a young university student at the time, called it, quote, finding defiance in their lyrics of the horror and torment of the white man's world. This was a new identity, end quote. In the 80s, Warumpi Band wrote what many consider an alternative Australian anthem, My Island Home. It's about the island of Elko in Arnhem Land, but it speaks of the continual attachment to their country, felt by each and every first Australian. At around the same time as Nicky Wimar pointing out the colour of his skin on the football field, other Indigenous artists emerged, like Yotho Yindi, a band that included Indigenous and non-Indigenous musicians. Another, Archie Roach, had been taken from his family and brought up in a foster home, suffering all the trauma that would entail. His popular songs reflected the Aboriginal identity of the country, including the suffering endured, in a mainstream way that reached the earbuds of a new generation seemingly ready for this national discussion. Grant writes of Archie, quote, Australians were opening their minds and hearts to people like Archie. How could anyone not? A gentle soul singing with no bitterness. This wasn't about politics. It was about people. End quote. The song that we used in the first episode of this series, From Little Things, Big Things Grow, also came from this time. Just as the Gurindji strike was the first act of Aboriginal defiance to gain traction on the national scale, the song about it was one of the first acts of cultural redefining to gain traction on this national scale. 
the derogatory term of black armband history was also at this time reappropriated and reused by a collective of various Australian musicians who have performed as the black armband. So the history wars morphed somewhat into being more culture wars. And that, of course, meant that politicians and their positions remained involved and impactful the whole time. In 1996, Paul Keating and the nominally left-wing Labor Party lost the general election to the Liberal Party, the Conservatives, under the leadership of John Howard. John Howard would remain Prime Minister for the next 11 years and would take a vastly different approach towards the history wars than that of his predecessor. Howard tended to the same position as Keith Winshuttle, who became a sort of historical advisor to the administration. Unfortunately for those who had most lauded and agreed with Keating's Redfern speech in 93, John Howard's speeches on the issue would reflect this new advisement. In May 1997, a National Reconciliation Convention was held. Howard was not far into his Prime Ministership and was already under pressure from Aboriginal rights activists. Siding with pastoralists and mining companies, he had introduced something called the WIC 10-point plan, which would amend Mabo's famous victory, the Native Title Act of 1993, by restricting the ability of Aboriginals to negotiate on mining and pastoral leases. To Native Title activists and all First Australians, here was the establishment hitting back against the rebellious gains made by those such as the Gurindji and Eddie Mabo. The WIC 10-point plan would come into effective law in 1998. Howard was due to make a speech to the convention on the nature of resolving the objectives of the reconciliation process and, as he saw it, also some things that should be taken into consideration throughout. In the first part of that speech, he talks about those objectives, saying, quote, The first is a shared commitment to raise the living standards and broadening the opportunities available to the most disadvantaged group in Australian society, and that is Indigenous Australians. And that must be done as part of a broader commitment to providing equality of opportunity to all Australians. A second objective is a realistic acknowledgement of the interrelated histories of the various elements of Australian society. And a third is a mutual acceptance of the importance of working together to respect and appreciate our differences and to ensure that they do not prevent us from sharing the future. End quote. And that is all fairly reasonable, and it showed that Howard at least understood the recognition of conflict of which Keating had spoken. In fact, a lot of the speech is fairly reasonable. But frequently throughout, Howard would reveal his conservative political and social stance on the matter. He was now starting to delve into the history wars, in suggesting how people should view their own history. It is this following part of the speech that is most remembered, and upon which most analysis and criticism has been based. So I'm going to let Howard tell you himself. Personally, I feel deep sorrow for those of my fellow Australians who suffered injustices under the practices of past generations towards Indigenous people. In facing the realities of the past, however, we must not join those who would portray Australia's history since 1788 as little more than a disgraceful record of imperialism, exploitation and racism. 
Such a portrayal is a gross distortion and it deliberately neglects the overall story of great Australian achievement that is there in our history to be told and such an approach will be repudiated by the overwhelming majority of Australians who are proud of what this country has achieved, although inevitably acknowledging the blemishes in its past history. Australians of this generation should not be required to accept guilt and blame for past actions and policies over which they had no control. The wounds that Aboriginal communities have been suffering from for 200 years had been now labelled as blemishes, a word meaning inflictions no more than skin deep. As Judith Brett, Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, said of the word choice, quote, Here is a Prime Minister denying that race relations really are at the heart of some of Australia's most intractable problems. He's denying it at the same time as using a word that draws attention to skin colour. End quote. During Howard's 11 years in power, Australia took a much different shape than what Keating had hoped for. One of his first acts in 96 was to cut funding to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, the only Indigenous self-governing body, and he abolished it altogether six years later. In 1997, the Bringing Them Home report on the forced removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their homes, was released. One of the first things the report states is, quote, In no sense has the inquiry been raking over the past for its own sake. The truth is, the past is very much with us today, in the continuing devastation of the lives of Indigenous Australians. That devastation cannot be addressed unless the whole community listens with an open heart and mind, to the stories of what has happened in the past, and, having listened and understood, commits itself to reconciliation. End quote. A shorter and more concise community guide to the report was also produced. It summarised the findings thus, quote, Indigenous families and communities have endured gross violations of their human rights. These violations continue to affect Indigenous people's daily lives. They were an act of genocide, aimed at wiping out Indigenous families, communities and cultures, vital to the precious and inalienable heritage of Australia. End quote. Howard outright objected to the claim of genocide, as did many other politicians, historians and commentators, including our mate Keith Winshuttle, who would write an entire refutation of the report, which makes sense, the report is based on oral history, so you know. That doesn't count. I guess doing this podcast is an entire waste of time. Calls for a formal federal apology to the stolen generation became louder, but Howard consistently refused to do so. In 1999, three years after he had affirmed his commitment to reconciliation, Howard refused to join several hundred thousand other people in a public walk for reconciliation. In 2007, a board of inquiry into the protection of Aboriginal children released another report, this one called The Little Children Are Sacred. The report stated that sexual and child abuse in the Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory was significant, and that the matter be designated as an issue of urgent national significance. 
It recommended that the federal government should follow the lead of the Northern Territory government and that both should commit to genuine consultation with Aboriginal communities on what to do about the abuse of children, keeping in mind the psychological and emotional risk to those children being abused. There was also a history of Australian governments taking Aboriginal kids, and the report understood this sensitivity. Howard's reaction was a centralised and heavy-handed approach, directed from Canberra, and not the localised effort recommended by the report. Very few of the 97 recommendations were actually followed, and instead, a military intervention was planned and undertaken, with Aboriginal communities across the region coming under the authority of soldiers following orders. In 2011, an Aboriginal delegation met with the then UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay. It was reported that she said of their intent, quote, Firstly, they said that there's been an intervention and it started off badly without them being consulted. And secondly, there is insufficient respect for their land, end quote. There was some Indigenous support for the intervention, or at least aspects of it, as a focus on trying to protect children by eliminating drug and alcohol abuse. Aboriginal academic Marsha Langton argued that the intervention was an inevitable result of the failure of successive Northern Territory governments to adequately invest in the needs of their Aboriginal people. She also argued that Aboriginal policy had been determined by, quote, a wrong-headed Aboriginal male ideology that has prevailed in Indigenous affairs policies and practices for decades, end quote, and that the intervention may go some way to breaking that. So this, just as with Howard's entire reign, became just another contentious matter within this long and seemingly endless cycle of debate and discussion, and still, Aboriginal communities continued to live in deprivation and at a severe disadvantage compared with mainstream Australian society. Howard was defeated in 2007 by Kevin Rudd, a guy who rode a wave of a public needing new change and freshness, but who turned out to be a bit of a control freak. One of his first acts, though, was to officially offer an apology to the stolen generation, something he had campaigned heavily on and received much support for. Here is Rudd on the 13th of February, 2008, speaking to those of the stolen generation on behalf of the federal government and people of Australia. The time has now come for the nation to turn a new page. A new page in Australia's history by righting the wrongs of the past and so moving forward with confidence to the future. We apologise for the laws and policies of successive parliaments and governments that have inflicted profound grief, suffering and loss on these our fellow Australians. We apologise especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country. For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. To the mothers and the fathers, the brothers and the sisters, for the breaking up of families and communities, we say sorry. And for the indignity and degradation thus inflicted on a proud people and a proud culture 
we say sorry. The moment did seem again to represent a new direction taken towards what others like Whitlam and Keating had been aiming. Unfortunately, the next decade of politics in Australia would be mired in uncertainty, political vilification and obstruction. Still pretty much is today. Much of the Northern Territory remained under military control and was not given much direction from Canberra, no matter whom or which side of the political divide held power. Recent issues, particularly in Western Australia by their conservative state government, has been the attempt to close down remote communities by stopping all government services, like water. They hope to induce these people to leave their land and head for the coast. Well, you know, they will just be integrated and welcomed with warm and open arms by all the people living in coastal towns and cities. Because these kinds of plans made for Indigenous people of Australia by non-Indigenous people of Australia always work out great. Australia is by no means the first or only country to have been confronted with the issues around dissonant heritage, having to reconcile regrettable actions of the past with modern values and senses of national identity that conflict with that past. In the main square of Horn, an old, formerly influential town in the Netherlands, there stands a statue of a man who for centuries was considered that town's favourite son, Jan Pieterzoon Kuhn. He had been the Governor-General for the Dutch East India Company in Asia during the early 1600s, when they established their monopoly over the Spice Islands in Indonesia, and began to build the world's largest trade empire. The 1600s are often referred to as the Golden Age of the Netherlands. In no small part because of men like Kuhn, the Dutch became the wealthiest group of people that the world had up to that point ever seen. So his life within the context of the economic, cultural and political explosion of the Dutch Golden Age, constituted success and celebration. That's why his statue, erected in the 1890s, stands in the middle of the main square of the town in which he'd been born. That's pretty standard behaviour. If you want to remember someone, someone whose life contributed significantly to your people's history, a statue is a great way to do it. But history is in the eye of the beholder. Kuhn may have represented this golden age of Dutch global primacy in a period that went so far towards establishing Dutch national identity, but he had also quite clearly been responsible for the death and destruction of thousands of people, most notably the inhabitants of the Banda Islands, twin islands that were the source of all the world's nutmeg, and the inhabitants of which were massacred in their thousands when the Dutch under Kuhn's command took over. In 2011, a group of locals from Horn presented a petition to the city council requesting that the statue be taken down. They felt that Kuhn represented a past that they did not wish to celebrate or memorialise in a positive way. Statues are generally positive memorials, and this one had been contentious in Horn for a long time. The local Vesfries Museum, which is located on the same square as the statue and which focuses largely on Dutch Golden Age history, saw an opportunity here to approach this dissonant heritage in a communal way that would also help to educate the citizenry of Horn about their past. They established an exhibition about Kuhn and presented all the information available about him 
and his actions and the different sides of the debate about how he should be remembered to the public. The visitor experienced this exhibition as a trial in which they were the jury. The question was, does Kuhn deserve a statue? Nearly 10,000 people visited the exhibition and over 3,000 voted as jurors. In the end, 67% of those decided that the statue should remain. The exhibit invited and provoked discussion across the whole country. Several arguments were made for keeping the Kuhn statue in place, including that characters should be judged by the moral standards of their time, that it was also a monument to the nationalistic sentiment of the 19th century from which the erection of the statue had sprung. More importantly though, there was a lot of consensus that to remove the statue would be to also cover up the black mark in the country's history, which the statue now also represented. The town decided that to just leave the statue up as it had always been would not reflect this divergence of the historical and social narrative, and so they had the wording on its plaque redone. For decades, it had read simply Jan Peterson Kuhn, 1587-1629, born in Horn, Governor-General of the VOC and founder of Batavia, nowadays Jakarta. Now, along with his name and birth dates, the plaque also reads, Merchant Director General and Governor General of the Dutch East India Company, architect of the VOC's successful trading empire in Asia, founder of the city of Batavia, currently known as Jakarta. Kuhn was praised as a vigorous and visionary administrator, but he was also criticized for the violent means by which he built up trade monopolies in the East Indies. In 1621, Kuhn led a punitive expedition against one of the Banda Islands, as the local population was selling nutmeg to the English in disregard of a VOC ban. Thousands of Bundanese lost their lives during the assault, and the survivors were deported to Batavia. By the end of the 19th century, Kuhn had grown into a national hero and was honoured with a statue in his hometown. Whoa, that's a much longer plaque. The plaque then goes on to read how the statue was funded and who made it, which we're going to skip. But the very last lines read, This statue is controversial. According to critics, Kuhn's violent mercantilism in the East Indian archipelago does not deserve to be honoured. With a broad extent of information now made available to the public and to anyone who reads the plaque on the statue, Individuals are now empowered to make their own decisions about this man and what that period of history means for them. It does not just represent an entirely positive or entirely negative perspective on Kuhn and events of his time. It represents opposing perspectives and the possibility for all opinions in between. When people look at it, they can reflect on both the glory of the Dutch Golden Age as well as the atrocities that have been committed in the cause of that glory. As a final example of other countries dealing with dissonant heritage, we're going to go to Germany, where there is a good and typically long word for the process that the Dutch, in their own way, had gone through in the town of Horn. The Germans call it Vergangenheitsbewältigung. It means struggling to overcome or coming to terms with negative aspects of the past. 
the Germans have a fair bit of experience with this. And the term, as well as its sociological and philosophical implications, came out of post-war Germany. As within society, culture, and literature, people tried to deal with actions they had taken or had not taken during the rise of the Nazis, the war, and the Holocaust. Up until the late 50s, the common term had been Aufarbeitung der Vergangenheit, or working through the past. But writer Theo Adorno delivered a lecture in 1959 in which he dismissed this term, arguing that it implied a heads-down, bum-up approach of denialism. That's paraphrasing, by the way. Germans and Austrians were just trying to get through the misdeeds and traumatic stress and scarring of the past. Instead, only a critical self-reflection would allow the German and Austrian people to truly come to terms with that past. In the 60s and 70s, that period of German history started to be more and more widely acknowledged and discussed. In German high schools, significant periods of each year are now dedicated to studying the rise of the Nazis and fascism and the nationalism that would lead to the war and the anti-Semitism and other factors that would lead to the Holocaust. They visit concentration camps, rebuilt and preserved, which stand as greater and darker memorials to the depraved depths to which humans can steep in how they treat other humans than any statue ever has. So it is from these examples that other countries can take lessons. History, or memorializations to history like statues and monuments and national holidays, they do not have to sit on either side of a divide. Because history, like humanity, is not black and white. It is a confluence of all the weird and wacky things that make us, us. To celebrate it is to celebrate the highs and the lows, the pride and the shame. It's what we've all done, and what we've all had done to us by all of us. We started this podcast series talking about a question that Australian society turns to every year. Should Australia Day be Invasion Day? Should it be a day of celebration or a day of mourning? Well, it can be both. Reflecting on atrocities committed in the name of the same national identity to which you attach yourself does not require feeling guilt or remorse or personal shame. German kids do not visit concentration camps to feel guilty. They visit them to have an understanding of where they and their people have come from or gone through, no matter how morally reprehensible that place or that journey may have been. Just as you would not want a teenager to grow into an adult without having learned and grown from her mistakes, why would you want your country to move into a mature future without having done the same? When the First Fleet landed in Sydney on the 26th of January, the devastation of an ancient civilization and countless cultures did begin. We cannot deny that, as we continue to see the effects today. At the same time, a young and strong country did come into existence, replete with fantastic values and an entrenched, if sometimes neglected, sense that every person deserves a fair chance. Australia does provide some of the best living conditions and most laid-back culture in the world. It is full of brilliant and capable people and has the potential to become an absolutely great country. But it is not there yet. In this series, we used a song, From Little Things, Big Things Grow, 
by Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly to help to tell the story of the Gurindji strike and to set the scene for how rebellions and resistance can take many forms. Cultural artifacts like songs, poems and stories, as well as simple but demanding social actions like defiantly pointing to the colour of your skin in front of the nation or rebelliously flying your people's flag in front of a world audience and simply stating that we are here and we are as much a part of this as everyone else. These things imprint themselves on a society and help to change or shift the social narrative. It is from these things that we grow. There is a line in that song, From Little Things, Big Things Grow, which shows how much Carmody and Kelly both knew that the Gringy strike did not exist in isolation. It was a part of a greater movement, and one that continues, by necessity, to this day. That line is, This is the story of something much more. The story of something much more is the story of every Australian. It tells us who we are. It is one that is not over, but by necessity must draw on the entirety of our past. The good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly. Everything from which all of Australian history is a part. This is not just about the extent of the conflict or the divide between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, but more about recognising it and growing together from it. This is about all of us redefining what it is to be Australian in a way that truly incorporates the original cultures and the original people of the country. So now we have solved the problem of race relations in Australia. Well done. Next week, we will uh, cut through the Gordian knot of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The week after that, we will end the civil war in Syria. And finally, if we have time before our holidays, we are going to disarm the Korean Peninsula for good. It won't be easy, but somebody's got to do it. So while we're busy with the hard stuff, why don't you, dear listener, do some of the more simple but as important things like liking our Facebook page, facebook.com slash stuffwhatyoutellme. And tell us about the dissonant history of your country and whether it needs to be dealt with. We are very interested in hearing your comments and your feedback. If you like our podcast, please write a review on iTunes or wherever and spread the love on whatever podcast pages you may frequent online. If you love our podcast, give us money on Patreon. It helps us pay for our website and research materials for making this show. If you hate our podcast, then congratulations for sitting through that two-hour slog of an episode. You clearly have not enough hobbies or you fell asleep at some point and have just woken up. In which case, good morning, sunshine. Check out our website at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com for extra photos, videos, and materials we use in making this episode. And if you're from one of those unfortunate countries which has never heard of Australian rules of football before, then when somebody asks you which team you support, remember, it's the Demons. Always the Demons. That's your team.
This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani.